invite you to take your Bibles, turn along with me to the book of Nahum. Nahum, your Bible, the book of Nahum. We start a new series this morning in this Old Testament book uh, about which uh, often little is known. Nahum is one of the 12 books at the very end of the Old Testament, small books known as the Minor Prophets. And they are minor, not in importance, but in size. And if you're Scottish, you might say they are the wee prophets. They are small in stature in terms of their length, uh, but they are not minor in importance. The major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are much longer in length. And so uh, Nahum is situated there as a minor prophet grouped together with the other minor prophets. It is minor indeed, it is short in length, it's just three chapters long and a total of only 47 verses. And we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at this small but important book. I've entitled this series, Nahum, Gospel Comfort and Divine Judgment. Because these two themes, gospel comfort and divine judgment, are intertwined throughout the book, as we'll see even this morning. Gospel comfort and divine judgment may seem at first to be an odd and distasteful pairing, like pairing orange juice with toothpaste. They don't go well together. You should drink your orange juice before you brush your teeth. Believe me, I know from experience. But as, as in fact we're going to see, gospel comfort and divine judgment always go together, and they always pair well, each element enhancing the other. So instead of the pairing being like orange juice and toothpaste, it's more like a salted caramel with the sweetness of gospel comfort brought out and enhanced all the more by the salty contrast of divine judgment. Nahum is very closely situated within our Bibles to a a more well-known book of the minor prophets the book of jonah so in your bibles it goes jonah micah nahum and only micah separates jonah from nahum and in the book of jonah we can read of the amazing story of how jonah the disobedient prophet of god is swallowed by a great fish and jonah runs from god runs from god's purposes in his life swallowed by the fish spat up upon dry ground only after he has relented and decided to go and be obedient to the Lord. Not only do Jonah and Nahum share a close proximity in the scriptures, but they also share something else in common, the city, the ancient city of Nineveh. Nineveh was an amazing city in ancient times. It was the capital city of the great Assyrian Empire, arguably the first world empire known to man. An empire that lasted for over 300 years and whose territory covered nearly all of the ancient Near East. Nineveh was located far away, relatively speaking, from Israel, about 500 miles northeast. It was located running along the eastern bank of the Tigris River, which is in modern-day northern Iraq, near the city of Mosul. It was quite probably the largest city in the world at the time. 
The greater region of Nineveh is, is estimated to be some 600 miles in circumference. The city itself had miles and miles of defensive walls surrounding it with an inner wall and an outer wall. The inner wall was the taller of these walls and it measured eight miles in circumference. Between the inner and outer wall was a great moat, 100 100 feet wide and 60 feet deep. The great inner wall was 100 feet tall with a series of 15 watchtowers surrounding it. The wall surrounding Nineveh was wide enough that it was said that you could race three chariots side by side along it. Nineveh at the time had an estimated population of some 600,000 people, so roughly the population of El Paso County. It was, for its day, a megacity. Assyria and Nineveh, as its capital, ruled the world. They conquered nation after nation until they ruled the entire region of the Near East, that region known as the Fertile Crescent, stretching from modern-day Iraq up to Syria and Turkey and down into Egypt. The Assyrians rose to this height of power through ruthless aggression. They documented their victories meticulously on carefully written stone tablets, many of which still exist today, and you can see these in museums and online. One such victory tablet recounts the victories of a king who stated this, The nobles I flayed. 3,000 captives I burned with fire. I left not one hostage alive. I cut off the hands and feet of some. I cut off the noses, ears, and fingers of others. The eyes of numerous soldiers I put out. Maidens I burned as a holocaust. These were ruthless, ruthless leaders. Another king boasted that in a recent conquest he had captured 208,000 people. 7,200 horses and mules, 11,000 donkeys, 5,000 camels, 80,000 cattle, and 800,000 sheep. For this ruler, his human captives were just another statistic of his conquest. The Assyrian king, Shalmaneser, in the final year of his reign, stated, In my 31st year of reign, 250 cities I destroyed. Awe-inspiring terror I poured out over the enemy. I slew their warriors. I carried off their riches. When a group of Egyptians who were plotting against an Assyrian king were discovered, the king recorded that not a man among them escaped. Their corpses I hung on stakes. I stripped off their skins and covered the city walls with them. The Assyrians were known and feared for their brutal cruelty and seemingly invincible power. Now it's with this as a backdrop that Jonah was called by God around 760 B.C. to go to Nineveh to warn them of God's impending judgment for their great wickedness and to call them to repentance. And of course we know the story. And if you were here then, I preached it back in 2002. It's getting to be a long time ago now. Might have to refresh Jonah sometime. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? Because he, along with the rest of humanity, hated the Assyrians. They were bloodthirsty, evil people. 
Syria was the enemy, deserving of God's judgment, not God's mercy. Jonah knew that God was merciful and that if he went and preached that they might repent and God would definitely pardon them and forgive them and show mercy to them. And that's the last thing Jonah wanted. He wanted judgment for Nineveh, not mercy. And so Jonah ran from God's clear call on him to preach to Nineveh and he fled by ship in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He fled to Tarshish. But God sovereignly redirected Jonah by means of a great storm on the sea and through a great fish which swallowed Jonah and through three days and night in the deep that Jonah spent there in the belly of that fish. Jonah finally relented and went to Nineveh and warned them of God's coming judgment. And the people of Nineveh listened. And they believed and they repented of their great sins. And so God spared Nineveh from his judgment, even as Jonah had feared he would. But then within just a few years, a few generations later, the Assyrians lapsed back into their old ways of violent aggression. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians attacked the ten northern tribes of Israel, defeated them, and carried them off into exile as slaves, repopulating the land of Israel with foreigners. And that is where we pick things up in the book of Nahum, around 640 B.C., a hundred years after Jonah's preaching and after Nineveh's repentance. Nineveh is now back to its old ways of violence and lust and greed and idolatry, and pride. They were exerting their power and influence over Judah, the southern kingdom, having already carried off the northern kingdom into exile. Now the southern kingdom of Judah was threatened and was suffering. The southern kingdom was effectively a puppet state of the Assyrian kingdom. So the Assyrians continued to be a dreaded and hated enemy of the entire region and a threat to humanity and especially to the people of God there in Judah. Now that's a bit of the history behind the situation existing when we come to the book of Nahum. So with all that history and context in mind, I will read for us this morning our text from Nahum chapter 1, and I'll read verses 1 through 8. Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. 
and He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an ever-overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue His enemies into the darkness. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's go to Him and ask for His help and aid as we seek to see Him in all of His revealed glory this morning. Heavenly Father, glorious God, the one who is awesome and reigns over all things, we see in our text this morning a vision of you, lofty and exalted, a vision of you which is often overlooked, ignored, and denied by our own hearts. And yet it's a vision we need to see, understand, and embrace. Help us come to terms this morning with who you truly are, who you have revealed yourself to be. And most of all, help us to see your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our strong tower, our defense, the one into whom we can run and find deliverance and safety from the wrath that is to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Nahum begins with a kind of title page. That's what verse 1 is. It introduces us to the book by telling us who wrote it, what kind of writing it is, and what kind of message is contained in it. We're told that it's an oracle of Nineveh. An oracle is a pronouncement. In this case, it's a divinely inspired pronouncement given to Nahum by means of a vision which Nahum faithfully wrote down. And as we're going to see, this oracle given by God to Nahum in order, is in order to encourage the southern kingdom of Judah that the cruel tyranny of Assyria would soon come to an end and ultimately that God will judge all acts of evil, will deliver His people, and will one day set all things right. Nahum is obviously the author. The Hebrew name Nahum means comfort. And that's why I've used that in the title. Gospel comfort. That's Nahum's name. Comfort. It's a shortened form of the name Nehemiah, which means the comfort of Yahweh. Besides his name and that he's a prophet of God hailing from the place called Elkosh, we know very little about him. We don't know where Elkosh is exactly. It's probably a village in Judah. It's likely where Nahum received the vision and wrote it down. It's likely the intended audience as well, Judah, of this book. Having written down these preliminaries, Nahum records the divine oracle he was given beginning in verse 2. Now it's clear from how it's written that verses 2 through 8 form a distinct unit from the rest of the book. It's a different kind of work. It's a different kind of literature. Verses 2 through 8 are in the form of a hymn of praise, a psalm, really. They are arranged in a somewhat curious acrostic, a partial acrostic, with the first letter of each line corresponding to a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You can't tell that in your English Bible, but that's exactly what it is in Hebrew. But it only, this acrostic, using the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, only goes about 11 letters deep, and it skips two letters, which is a very strange thing indeed. 
And it's puzzled scholars. Why only do a partial acrostic? Why skip two letters of the alphabet? Well, many have understood it this way. If a full acrostic communicates completeness and wholeness, as it often does in Hebrew poetry, like Psalm 119, which is an acrostic of the entire Hebrew alphabet, a half acrostic with a couple of skipped letters prophetically communicates and poetically communicates that there is even more to the story yet to come. That there's even more judgment that awaits than what is written here. In uttering this oracle against Assyria for the consolation of Judah, in a broader sense, it's written against all wicked nations and peoples living in rebellion to God. Though partial judgment is imminent for the Assyrians, there is even more judgment to come for the world. And so in verses 2 through 8, we're going to see God reveal Himself to us in two primary ways. God is going to reveal Himself to us in this passage in two primary ways. First of all, He will reveal Himself as a God who executes both just judgment and merciful salvation. And secondly, he will reveal himself as a God who executes either just judgment or merciful salvation upon every person. Now in these verses, it's important to note that neither Nineveh nor the Assyrians are mentioned directly. In verses 2 through 8, we never hear of Nineveh. We don't hear of Assyria. They don't seem to be the exclusive focus here. Instead, the entire world seems to be the object of God's judgment or of His offer of salvation. So the two contrasting principles of divine judgment and gospel mercy seem to be laid out in these verses side by side as universal universal realities in every age, in every place, and to every person. So let's look then at the first way God reveals Himself to us. And that is that God executes both just judgment and merciful salvation. God executes both just judgment and merciful salvation. Look with me at verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. Now, right away, we realize that we're in deep water. This isn't a cheery message. This is a difficult one. But it's a true one. Right out of the gate, Nahum is challenging our natural inclinations about who God is. Since the fall of mankind into sin, we, as a human race, have been making false idols, false gods, gods that are fashioned not after the truth, but after our own preferences and ideas. Gods that are the kinds of gods that we would like for God to be. And so we create a God who just wants us to be happy or successful, or a God who just wants us to be our most authentic self. Or a God who's only love. Or a God who accepts us just as we are and never makes any demands of us. We create gods who never correct us and most certainly never judge us. 
The problem is, this is not who God is, and it's not who God has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. Nahum, right away here, reminds us of who God truly is. Who it is who made us, and who it is to whom we are accountable. This is not a God that has been crafted by our own hands. This is not a God who is there just to serve us and affirm us in all that we do. This is not a God who is only love and acceptance. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of truth. This is the God of reality. Psalm 50 reminds us of the grave danger of making God out to be something that he is not. Listen to what Psalm 50 says. Psalm 50, 21 and 22, God says this, You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. God says it matters what you believe about me. Nahum, here in these opening verses, has accurately written down for us God's revelation of himself to us. This is who God is. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Avenging and wrathful, who takes vengeance on his adversaries. Well, first of all, we see that God reveals for us here that he is a jealous God. Now, as humans, we know and experience jealousy. And this human jealousy is often the result of petty suspicions or some deep-seated insecurity within us. But when God says he is a jealous God, it means nothing like that. God's jealousy, like all of his attributes, is an outworking of his holiness. And so God's Jealousy is a perfect jealousy. It is a sinless jealousy. It is a holy jealousy. When God says he is jealous, it means that he allows no rivals. He allows no rivals to himself, no rivals to his glory, no rivals to his worship. This is precisely what God revealed about himself in the first Two of the Ten Commandments. Back in Exodus chapter 20, listen to this. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Jealousy is a part of God's character. It's a part of who he is, so much so that God even says in Exodus 34, 14, that his name is Jealous. The bottom line is this, God cares about who and what we worship. 
And as mankind's creator and life giver, God deserves our exclusive worship. And he's right to be jealously offended when we worship someone or something else, when we devote our lives to someone or something else, when we submit ourselves to someone or something else supremely other than him. God next reveals to Nahum and to us that he is an avenging God. This flows forth from his jealousy. This is the expression of his jealousy. He's an avenging God. The root word for avenging is repeated three times here in verse 2. It says that he exercises vengeance against those who rebel against him. So here we have this bitterness of the reality of God's judgment that he is jealous and he is avenging. And then we see the sweetness of the Lord himself. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. You may notice in your translation there that the word Lord is in all caps. That is the personal covenant name of God. It is Yahweh. And so already we're reminded of his personal nature and of his mercy and grace and covenanting with sinful mankind and calling a people to himself out of judgment and destruction and into blessing and life eternal. What a contrast. He is the Lord. God has unilaterally entered into covenant with his people for their blessing. A covenant of mercy which results in forgiveness of sins and eternal life. A covenant ratified through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Yes, God is jealous and avenging, but he is also the Lord of mercy and forgiveness through his gracious covenant of salvation. And so judgment and mercy go side by side. Switching back to judgment now, we learn in these verses that the Lord is also wrathful. The first instance of this word wrath here could be more literally translated as He is the Lord of wrath. He's the master of wrath. He's the sovereign of wrath. Now again, God's wrath or anger is not like ours. Our anger is almost always tainted by sin, tainted by selfishness and pride and our impatience. But God's wrath is a righteous and holy wrath. Again, an expression of His holiness. At the end of verse 2, we see that God's anger and wrath are stored up and reserved for His enemies. Now there's both comfort and dread in this one statement that God stores up wrath for his enemies. For those who are rightly related to God, to those who are God's friends, to those who are God's children, to those who have submitted themselves to God, there's great comfort in this truth because it means that God's wrath is not stored up for them. God's wrath is stored up for a different segment of the population of humanity. It's stored up for his enemies. 
And so there's consolation to the believing. There's consolation to those who are part of God's kingdom. But there's great dread for those who are God's enemies, for they will be the recipients of the stored-up wrath of God. Romans 2.5 says, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Judgment day is coming. God has so determined it. He has promised it. And He will fulfill it. In verse 3, God now mercifully reveals to us that He is slow to anger. Yes, He is jealous. Yes, He is an avenging God. Yes, He is a God of wrath. But nevertheless, He is slow to anger. He's long on anger, literally. This truth means that along with the sobering reality of God's terrifying anger and wrath, there is also the hopeful truth that He is slow to this anger. That God is slow to anger means that He is patient. He is patient with us. He is patient toward us. He's long-suffering. He doesn't pour out His anger and wrath immediately upon us and upon our every sin. Instead, He's patient. He's long-suffering towards sinners, giving them time to repent, giving them space to repent. This is nearly identical to the passage in Exodus where God revealed himself to Moses. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. These verses from Exodus, again, are nearly identical to what God has revealed to Nahum and to us here in verse 3. God is slow to anger, but He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, Consider this reality this morning. You are still here. You are still alive. You are still breathing despite your sin and rebellion against the God who made you, against the God who owns you, against the God to whom you are eternally accountable. Why is that? Because he is slow to anger. Because he's abounding in loving kindness. God withholds his anger and wrath because he has been merciful and long-suffering toward you. But it would be the height of pride and foolishness to presume this morning, to presume upon the Lord's patience by thinking that because he hasn't executed his just judgment upon you, that he never will execute this just just judgment. For while he is slow to anger, he will by no means not leave the guilty unpunished. 
The reality is this. God is the all-powerful judge. He is the one, at the beginning of verse 3, says that not only is he slow to anger, but he is also great in power. Both truths must be kept in mind. He is mercifully long-suffering, yes, but that doesn't mean he is weak or impotent to act or judge. He is the omnipotent God who, though patient and long-suffering, is powerful to judge and punish sin when the season of his patience has finally passed. Having described God's character and power in relation to the sin and rebellion of mankind, God now, in the middle of verse 3, begins to reveal to Nahum and to us his awesome character and his power throughout nature. He is the ruler over all. Says that in whirlwind and storm is his way. God is pictured here as a cosmic divine warrior riding into battle against his enemies upon the storm clouds. This is who God is. This is the God you're resisting. This is the God you're fighting. This is the God you hope doesn't really exist. But he does. He's the God who rides the clouds, who rides the whirlwind and the storm. The next line says that the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. What a picture of unsurpassed greatness, of awesome glory and power. In ancient times, the pagan gods were believed to control the weather, particularly Baal. But here it is Yahweh who is clearly in charge of the clouds and the weather. Next, God reveals that he rebukes the sea and he makes it dry. He simply speaks and the sea goes away, dries up. It's gone forever. And the result of this is that formerly lush and fruitful places like Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon wither up. They wither up and die for lack of water. So here God is pictured as controlling the hydrological cycles and bringing severe drought to formerly fertile places. The fact that God dries up the sea certainly seems to be a clear reference to Exodus of the Hebrews as they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground through the Lord's act of deliverance. And again, when God parted the waters of the Jordan and the children of Israel crossed over on dry ground into promised land. Even so, here in an act of judgment, God dries up the seas and the rivers, causing all that is lush to wither. But it isn't just the clouds and the weather and the rivers and the seas that God rules over, but also the land. Look at verse 5. It says the mountains quake because of Him. The mountains, we know the mountains, right? Us Coloradans. We know the mountains. They're always there. They orient us. You don't have to get up in the morning and wonder where the mountains went. They're always there. They're the very picture of stability. We orient our lives by them. We know where east and west and north and south is because those mountains are always there. But not when the warrior God appears. 
The mountains shake because of him. Not only do the mountains shake, but the hills dissolve. The shaking is so great that the mountains and hills are shaken flat. What once towered on the horizon is brought low by the very presence and power of God. Nahum continues to record what God revealed. He says, Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence, the world and all its inhabitants in it. Again, we're not just talking about Nehemiah. We're not just, or not Nehemiah. We're not just talking about Nineveh. We're not just talking about Assyria. We're talking about a worldwide cosmic judgment where the world is upheaved by His presence and all the inhabitants. With the arrival of God the warrior, the entire created world is in a sense being unmade, undone, uncreated, un-overturned. This is true for the whole world and all inhabitants. When God the divine warrior comes to judge in righteousness, no one will escape his upending power. Now, this is intended to be a terrifying picture of cataclysmic judgment when this jealous god after waiting patiently acts in vengeance and wrath nothing on earth can resist him all is undone before him and brought low it is a promise that judgment day is coming on a cosmic scale are you ready for it The reality of this coming judgment leads to a series of rhetorical questions in verse 6. These rhetorical questions, like all rhetorical questions, are asked not in order to gain more information. For the answer is known by all. Instead, these rhetorical questions are intended to cause the hearer to enter closer into the discussion, to not stand on the fringes, but to enter in and to ask themselves these questions. And so ask yourself this morning these questions. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? And of course the answer is no one. No one can withstand His anger. No one can stand before His indignation. On our own, we stand before God helpless, powerless, naked, and guilty, fully deserving of His righteous vengeance and holy wrath. And as if we weren't already convinced, Nahum writes that God's wrath is poured out like fire, possibly picturing uh, the lava that is flowing from an erupting volcano or hot oil that is poured from the ramparts of a castle onto the heads of enemies below. God's wrath is poured out like fire and it says that rocks are broken up. That which is hard and seemingly unbreakable is no match for the Lord. The greatest of boulders cannot withstand the Lord's wrath, much less the human heart. This is the God to whom we are all accountable. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. He has made us. He's given us life and breath and everything, and we are accountable to Him. And we will face Him one day. Are you ready? 
And that brings us to the second revelation about who God is. God executes either just judgment or merciful salvation upon every person. There are only two kinds of people in this world, spiritually speaking. Those who receive just judgment and wrath from God and those who receive His mercy and grace in forgiveness. In the midst of this dense, smoke-filled cloud of revelation about the certain judgment of God blows a fresh, life-giving wind of hope here in verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. The Lord is good, beloved. The Lord is good. That is good news. That is the foundation of good news. That is the best of news. The Lord is good. He's perfectly good. He's good in all that He does. He's good when He exercises judgment. He's good when He exercises mercy and forgiveness. He is good. That is fundamentally who He is. And that goodness is good news for sinners. Without God's goodness, we would be hopeless. And we would be helpless. That the Lord is good is good news for sinners, and it's good news for all who will hear it. Just as God's judgment of sin is rooted in His character of holiness, so God's merciful salvation is rooted in His character of goodness. The Lord is good. He's perfectly good. He's infinitely good. And this goodness makes salvation possible. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. What's the day of trouble? Well, the day of trouble is the day of judgment. It's the day that he's been describing here. The day that God comes us to us in his vengeance and anger. It is judgment day. The day that God comes as a warrior judge is the day of trouble. The day when God upends our lives in jealous judgment and holy wrath. But God reveals that He is a stronghold against that day. He's a stronghold against His own wrath. He's a protection. He's a place of safety from Himself. A stronghold is a fortress, a place of protection and safety. And notice here that our strong tower is not anything in us. It's not anything in this world. It is the Lord and His goodness which is our stronghold. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Look at the end of verse 7. The Lord knows those who take refuge in Him. What a good God we serve. Not only does He provide protection for us, but He knows us. He knows us personally. He knows us individually. He knows us intimately. The fact that He knows us is not talking about some kind of mere intellectual knowledge or awareness, but it is the language of active caring. He cares about us. He protects us. The Lord knows intimately and cares for each one of us who have taken refuge in His goodness. How has God provided this stronghold against the day of trouble? 
Well, we know how He has. He's done it through His Son, Jesus Christ. How can we run to this stronghold and find safety? Through faith in Jesus, we are delivered from God's just wrath for our sins. And for on the cross, Jesus bore all of it on our behalf. Think about the cross. It too was a display of God's great power, God's holiness, God's vengeance, God's just wrath and anger. Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, went to the cross and He died on, on behalf of sinners like you and me. And there on the cross, what happened? The sky grew dark. The warrior God was coming and He was about to pour His wrath on his own son. The earth shook. The rocks were split. As the divine warrior God poured out his just wrath and vengeance on his own son, his own sinless son, the one who knew no sin but became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is how we can find Safety and protection in the stronghold of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the strong contrast again, though, that comes in verse 8. For those who refuse to trust in Jesus, God says, with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now, Nahum writes this before the destruction of Nineveh. It hasn't happened yet. Nineveh is still riding high still at peak power. Nahum writes this before the destruction of Nineveh, and yet we know from history that the way Nineveh fell after Nahum recorded these words was through the flooding of the Tigris River, which undermined part of Nineveh's protective wall, causing it to crumble, allowing the armies to breach those defensive walls and utterly destroy the city leaving it nothing but a pile of rubble that was eventually covered by the sands of time. So great was its destruction that the ancient site of Nineveh lay undisturbed and undiscovered until 1846. It was totally obliterated, wiped off the map, as it were. This is what God does to His enemies. He utterly destroys them. For those who persist in their sin and rebellion, there is no escaping the certain judgment of God. Though His judgment may delay because He's long-suffering, know this, that His judgment is sure and that when it comes, it will be devastating. It would be true for Nineveh and it is true for every person who persists in stubborn rebellion against their Creator today. In fact, there's only one way to escape this certain coming judgment. It's found in verse 7. It's the Lord and His goodness, who is a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. And His goodness by trusting in Jesus Christ today. Do not delay. Do not put it off. But in faith, run into Jesus. 
our stronghold and find refuge from the day of wrath. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your correction of our thinking. In many ways, we have pictured you as a God that you simply are not. We've tried to curate you into a God that is more in keeping with our own tastes and preferences and comfort. Thank you for correcting us this morning and showing us who you truly are, a God of jealousy, vengeance, and wrath, a God who will judge, a God who's going to overturn this fallen creation and remake it, a God who is going to judge sin and rebellion, and it will be a devastating judgment. And yet within this same passage, you have beautifully shown yourself to be the Lord, Yahweh, the personal covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. God who has provided for our escape from the wrath that is to come, deliverance and salvation and eternal life and forgiveness of sins, all through the giving of your own Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our stronghold. Jesus is our place of safety, the only place of safety where we can find deliverance from the wrath that is to come. Lord, I pray that every person in here would flee to Jesus Christ, would look to Jesus Christ, would believe upon Jesus Christ and find forgiveness and salvation. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.